Dale's Petcast. They provide unconditional love, unlimited companionship, and unquestionable support. We're talking about your pets. Useful information for you to better care for and understand your pet. This is Steve Dale's Petcast, brought to you by MerrickPetCare.com. Well, this is the premier Petcast, and I have someone here on the other end of the phone who knows all about the human-animal bond. And in fact, all of these Petcasts really will be about that. Dr. Maggie O'Hare, Associate Professor, Human-Animal Interaction at Purdue's College of Veterinary Medicine. I don't think that I would be doing what I do. Dr. O'Hare, and probably you wouldn't be doing what you do if we didn't have this thing called the human-animal bond. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I don't think there would be, right now in America, there are more pets than there are children. And in fact, during the pandemic, not only was the pet industry recession-proof, it grew a total, and I remember this number because it's easy to remember, the total spending, $100 billion with a B, amazing, and more pets adopted than ever before. It was an incredible year for pets, not an incredible year for most of us at all. So what is the professor of human-animal interaction? What, what, what does that mean? Well, Steve, I am very lucky because my entire job is focused around studying how we interact with animals and what that bond is and what impact that can have on our mental health and wellness. All right. And one thing that we know for sure is that dogs and cats are good for us. Well, I say that we know for sure. Do we know for sure? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that we know in some areas, but I think we still have a lot of questions open because, you know, not everyone, you know, goes out and has an animal. So there are some people who, for some reason, are not into the idea of having a pet or may have a different reaction to having a pet. But I think we have a lot of promising data that is starting to put some science behind why it's beneficial when it is beneficial. And that's what's really exciting to start to understand that there are measurable ways we can capture, you know, how petting a dog can influence our heart rate and our blood pressure or how even just watching an animal can change, you know, biologically the way that we are interacting with the world. I think we have a lot of exciting findings, but a lot of open questions still to answer as well. All right. So, Maybe you have the citation for the study. If you don't, that's okay. I remember a study was done where people were ushered into a room and they played a movie, a Lassie movie, and it was a very old Lassie movie. And like a lot of Lassie movies, Timmy, you know, fell down the well and Lassie saved the day and people were in tears afterwards. They actually had to hand out tissue and then they measured, they actually measured things like serotonin and other things before the movie and after the movie, and even watching a movie. This wasn't a real dog. Everyone knows this mm-hmm. wasn't. It's a movie. <laughs> and yet, yet, the, the, there was a difference. Yep, absolutely. I think it's, it's fascinating. You know, we'll take it in any form or dose we can get it. Um, so even if you don't have a pet animal at home, they're even just watching videos of animals on the internet has been related to significant outcomes in humans. So whether it be hands-on with the animal, watching a movie of the animal, 
or even something like going to the zoo and looking at an animal without being able to physically interact with them. All of these things are popular, prevalent, and can be beneficial. So if you do something that doesn't matter what it is, you you, you do something and you feel horrible after doing it, you're not likely mm-hmm. to do it again, right? Human nature. Correct. If you do something, anything, and you feel good after, then you mm-hmm. probably will do it again. I wonder, based on what you just said, if that is one reason why so many people go to the zoo. The zoo is the most often visited place in America, actually. If you add up all the number of people that go to zoos and compare that with baseball games, compare that with football Mm -hmm. games, compare that with anything Mm -hmm. where people get together in one place, zoos are at the top of the list. I think it's a Mm -hmm. curiosity also about the natural world, but I wonder if what Mm. you said could possibly be true, that we simply feel good after we go to the zoo. Absolutely, and I think it's something that is rooted in science. So I don't know if you've heard of the biophilia hypothesis, but it's basically this idea that we have an innate tendency to want to look at nature and animals in any form. So, you know, evolutionarily, we would have grown up around animals and nature, but today we live in this hectic and technology-driven society where we spend less and less time around animals and trees and nature, but we still have this biological drive to seek it out in any way that we can. And that's possibly one explanation for why people want to go to the zoo, right? You still want to see and feel that you have that connection and engagement with animals and nature because it's so innate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, along those lines, and maybe, Maggie, Dr. O'Hare, you can explain this to me, uh, where mm-hmm. this is guaranteed to happen. You're talking to, let's say, the uh, cable company, and you've been on hold forever, and and you're told how important you are as a customer, and you're still on hold forever, and you're getting more and more frustrated because it's the fifth time <laughs> this week that cable has gone down. And finally, someone comes to the phone who you really don't understand. They're probably in another country, and you don't really understand what they're saying. And your dog will do one of two things. Your dog will either jump in your lap, presumably maybe, to try to console you, or your dog will sense that you're upset and hightail it right out of there. Am I right about describing what most dogs would do? The fact is you're not asking the dog to do anything. The dog is picking up on this anxiety that you feel instantly and is responding in one of two ways. Am I right about that? Absolutely. I think we're learning more and more about just how much about our our emotions, our anxieties, our behaviors that dogs can pick up on. They're amazingly adept at doing so. They recognize the difference between a picture of a smiling, happy face and a picture of an unhappy or angry face, and they will respond differently. And that once you have that bond with an animal and they know you know, your signals and your different behaviors, they are going to pick up on it. And that's one of the most you know, fascinating things. And I think one of the things that's most special about particularly the human animal bond with dogs is that they have evolved over time to be experts in identifying and responding to our behavior. Absolutely right. I have always said this, that as smart as we are, 
dogs actually understand us better than we understand them. I think that is a fascinating assertion, and, and I like the thought process behind it. I think, you know, we actually don't know how they do a lot of the wonderful things that they do yet, but we see that they can pick up on things. They can sense, you know, when a person's about to have a panic attack and intervene, they sense changes in our emotions and change their behavior. And, you know, it's unclear to us quite how they're doing it, but they are able to do so. You know, I remember years ago, years ago, Dr. O'Hare, I was doing an interview with a colleague who, at that time, I don't know what he does now, but he wrote about pets at that time. And he told me a story. He said, my dog, I don't remember the breed, I think maybe an Australian Shepherd, but I'm not certain of that. And that really doesn't matter to the story. He said, my dog would cause seizures in me. And I thought, what? Mm -hmm. But he continued to tell the story. He said, well, that's what Mm -hmm. I thought. Because whenever my dog would begin to bark Mm. and begin to, like, run around in circles around me and I'd be outside, even in the world, Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. thought my dog was causing me to be upset and Mm -hmm. causing a seizure. He said what Mm -hmm. I figured out, and this was before we knew anything about seizure-detecting dogs. What Mm -hmm. I figured out, he said, is my dog was warning me I'm about to have a seizure, and once mm-hmm. I listened to my dog and sat down and then took medication, I either didn't mm-hmm. have any seizure at all or it was so minimal as a result of me paying attention to the dog. I wrote about it at the time, and everyone said, what? But today we know <laughs> that dogs can do these things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and one of the things I think is fascinating, and to your point, that dogs may be more aware than we are, is that dogs have been figuring out how to do this and detect this before we could understand how they're detecting it. So there's a lot of exciting research going on now to figure out what the dogs are actually picking up on, because for the most part, they're not trained to detect this. In many cases, they figure it out on their own. Yeah, that's quite incredible, I think. And I I still... Stand by what I said, that dogs get us better than we get them. They know things. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really do. They know things. They pick up on the most subtle cues. For example, dogs with separation distress seem to know when you're leaving the house, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things I tell people as a behavior consultant regarding dogs with separation distress is to eliminate those cues, you know? So... We Mm -hmm. are going to come back and we're going to talk about some of the research you've done uh, regarding veterans and service Mm -hmm. dogs and the good these dogs really and truly do. Hang in there one second, Dr. O'Hare, because even in a pet cast, we have what we call commercial breaks. For over 30 years, Merrick Pet Care has held true to their original vision creating high-quality pet recipes, crafted and tested, offering wholesome meals for pets with industry-leading levels of protein, vitamins, minerals, and healthy fats. Each recipe has been, well, real deboned meat and poultry or fish as their number one ingredient, plus fresh vegetables and fruits from farmers as they know and trust. Trust Merrick Pet Foods, for your cat or dog, MerrickPetCare.com or find Merrick Pet Foods in your favorite pet supply stores or online. That's 
Merrick Pet Foods. Whoops, that's MerrickPetCare.com. MerrickPetCare.com. I'm talking to Dr. Maggie O'Hare. She's an associate professor of human-animal interaction at Purdue's College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. O'Hare, you know, I've always said, and I'm not alone, and I've only said this because of the number of veterans that I've spoken to anecdotally who have told me in this very studio, actually, that there was this one guy, don't remember his name, and he had a, a, a pug. And he sat in the studio with his pug, and he told me with tears in his eyes that he suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome after serving in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you've served our country. You're a hero. He said, no, this dog is a hero because if this dog wasn't here, I wouldn't be here. Now, you've heard the same mm-hmm. thing, I'm sure. And anecdotally, we know that many veterans say that. But you said we want to go beyond the anecdote. Yes, absolutely. And it's really inspired by stories just like the one you told, because we have veterans who will say to us, you know, I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for my dog and and talk about this amazing impact they've had on their life. But the reality is that without the science, it's hard to support that as an option. So, you know, if you think about clinicians, um, medical professionals, they have to look to the science to decide what they're going to support and recommend. So if a veteran comes in and asks, for a service dog, if there's no science to support it, it's very challenging for them to offer that as an option. Um, And that's really one of the things that inspired us to get into this space because we know that our veterans are suffering. You know, it's PTSD, which often comes along with anxiety, depression, substance abuse. Suicide rates are alarmingly high. And if there's anything that we can do to help these veterans, to give them a voice through science, then I really think it's our duty to do so. Well, one of the reasons why we need the science, and then I want to hear what you did regarding creating science, not creating science, but you know what I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. conducting a study to demonstrate Mm -hmm. whether these dogs really made a difference or not, is that the U.S. government at some point said 10 years ago uh, that we're Mm -hmm. not going to support service financially. We're not going to support mm-hmm. these dogs anymore. And I did story mm-hmm. after story, and I argued, well, this doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense because now mm-hmm. you're going to be spending – the government's paying for the drugs. The government is paying for their unemployment check that they may have because with a dog, they can lead a closer to normal, quote-unquote, life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. we're also talking about the importance of the study – Uh, to support, because the government said, well, we don't have enough science. And I said, yeah, there is enough science. Uh, But you Mm -hmm. you have added to that science. So I wanted to throw that in there because I think that's really important to understand that you had lots of reasons for doing this. Uh, So Mm -hmm. explain what you did. So ultimately what we've done is a multi-phase set of studies, and we're really trying to compare the experience of veterans who have a service dog to veterans who do not have a service dog who are experiencing the same PTSD symptoms. And so I think a key thing to know is what is a service dog, right? You know, how is that different from my pet dog at home or other terms I hear like emotional support dog? And the key thing to remember is that a service dog is trained to do tasks 
to help with a disability. So for service dogs for PTSD, this is most commonly things like interrupting panic attacks or helping with anxiety. So they might um, lean up against the veteran to nudge them to return to the present space when they're about to have a panic attack or do several other tasks that are related to that. So the first thing we wanted to find out, you know, what is the most important task? And veterans are using trained tasks up to seven times a day on average, and five of those are often related to calming and comfort to anxiety. Um, These tasks are helping with 12 of 20 different PTSD symptoms, and most often they're helping with things like hypervigilance or startling. So our veterans will be, you know, in a grocery store. To me, going to the grocery store doesn't seem like an overly stressful event. I mean, maybe under a pandemic circumstance, but it's things like walking down an aisle and not knowing who might come up behind you. It's always feeling on edge. So just having that dog next to you to nudge you when someone's coming up behind you can potentially prevent a panic attack um, or bring you back to the present and enable behind it. But we did several studies to understand if it was impacting clinical symptoms of PTSD. And what we found that veterans with service dogs have clinically significantly lower levels of PTSD symptoms. Um, It's important to remember that it's not a cure. Most veterans still have PTSD, but they're able to better manage their symptoms on a day-to-day basis to get out of the house and engage with society. So, for example, 82% had less absenteeism from work due to health among those that were employed, and they had 70% higher overall psychological well-being. So, these are just some of the findings that we have been looking at so far, and we also looked at it on a biological level, too, if you're curious about that. Uh, Yes, I am. Go ahead. Wonderful. So we studied the stress hormone cortisol. Have you heard of it before? I think I have, yes. I bet you have. So most people haven't, though. And the way that we study cortisol is actually through saliva. So imagine, Steve, if you were a research participant, I would be calling you on the phone and asking for your saliva. How would you feel about that? Well, I... I have an answer that I won't. Let me. Let me. I. I think that I would. I would feel honored to participate honored. Well, in any study. Exactly. Yes. Well, the reason I bring that up is because I think you know not everyone wants to have a researcher call and ask for their spit. <laughs> and these veterans have been amazing to work with. You know, they have a lot going on in their lives, but they were open and willing to partner with us on something that sounds strange, because they believe in wanting to help other veterans and people to promote this science and learn more. So we were really lucky that they partnered with us on that. And I just want to point that out because when we see a a scientific finding, we don't often think about how much goes into actually um, participating in, in what the veterans are doing for science. So what we found, though, is that this extensively studied stress hormone is biologically different among veterans who have a service dog compared to those who don't have a service dog. And that's so huge, we're able to measure huge. that. That's huge. And and the fact, everything you're saying, though, so all of this is cumulative, and when it adds up, depending on the individual, to a certain level, then that individual may contemplate suicide. 
And and what you're talking about is not only the best for society, for you, for you, for all of you, because who's paying for that unemployment when that person doesn't go to work? Who's paying for the drugs of the person that needs more drugs or larger dosages of drugs? We all are doing that. So it's better for society. But most importantly, we're talking fewer suicides and we're talking quality of life for veterans that deserve it. That's my view. Absolutely. It's a really it's a really exciting thing to be working on to share with these veterans and to be able to put those metrics and biological measures behind the story so that like you said it can be meaningful and impactful on a, a bigger community and societal level to make a difference. So when all of your studies are completed, and I know some are published, some are in the process of being published all peer reviewed, then what is the goal for the government to say, hey, this really does matter? You know, as a scientist, I have to try and steer clear of making policy recommendation or decision. But I, I think the goal would be to help inform policymakers so that they can feel that they are able to make an informed decision. So as you mentioned right now, you know, the government isn't going to pay for psychiatric service dogs. They will pay for service dogs for physical disabilities. So I think there's just a mismatch right now. Um, and that's that's true in many areas, right, in terms of the respect and credibility that medical interventions for physical disabilities or physical ailments get over psychiatric or psychological needs. And I think this is just part of that mental health awareness to understand that this is just as serious and requires just as much help as any physical ailment and and this science is helping to show measurably what it can do. I think sometimes people have trouble imagining what change looks like for a psychological disorder such as PTSD and that's what we're hoping to do is to be able to show what is concrete and measurable changing in their quality of life, changing in how they get out of the house and participate in society and how can we enhance their lives and measure that through science. Well, uh, congratulations on the work you're doing, because truly, I was not exaggerating. It will save lives and already has done so, I'm sure, because that person with the service dog, we know statistically, is not as likely to commit suicide, not as likely to be unemployed, not as likely to be taking as many drugs or have the dosage maybe be lowered because they have a service dog. And the list goes on and on, everything from child abuse to divorce. I mean, we have data on all this. Uh, And you're demonstrating these dogs truly, truly, scientifically make a difference. Thank you so much for the work you do, Dr. Maggie O'Hare, Associate Professor, Human-Animal Interaction, Purdue College of Veterinary Medicine. A pleasure to talk to you. It's great to chat with you, Steve. Thank you so much. I always enjoy talking with Dr. O'Hare. I remember when she first said, I want to do this, and we had a conversation on the radio about it. You can hear Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN Radio, Sunday mornings at 5.30. Steve Dale's Other World, Sunday afternoons at 1 o'clock, 7.20 WGN. But most importantly, and I'm kind of nervous because this is the first one. This is my virgin pet cast. Can I say that? And, and that cannot happen without Merrick Pet Care. I've, I've long been a supporter of what they do at Merrick. Uh, and for further information, MerrickPetCare.com. Uh, and 
it, go to the website and you will be sold just by going to the website. You've been listening to Steve Dale's Petcast, brought to you by MerrickPetCare.com. And as Steve always says, be good to your pet and they'll be good to you.